On Thursday, Russia's lower house of parliament voted to approve a treaty with the Ukraine that includes the annexation of the Black Sea Peninsula of Crimea. On Friday, the upper house of the Russian parliament finalized the treaty, even as the Ukraine, even as the Ukraine was signing a treaty with the European Union. The news of this Russian treaty is somewhat of a surprise to the Ukraine because they don't remember requesting a treaty with the Russians. They don't remember asking the Russians to take a third of their waterfront property. They don't remember asking the Russians to take control of the valuable natural gas and oil deposits that are off the coast of Crimea. That's kind of news to them. But the move should not be too surprising since the Russians have been blockading Ukrainian troops on their military base for weeks now. Major economic sanctions have been imposed to try and convince Russia to change its plans. Meanwhile, as all of this political play unfolds, Ukrainian citizens of every ethnic persuasion live in contested lands, which means they live in the midst of political unrest, They live in the midst of constant threat of war and violence. They live in their own lands as second-class citizens. Too many others in the world know what this is like. Venezuelans find their lives disrupted and in peril as violent clashes between government officials and protesters continue to rock the capital city of Caracas. At issue there, access to necessary goods, high inflation rates, and high crime rates. Government officials blame the protesters. Protesters blame the government officials. And meanwhile, Venezuelan citizens, just like you and me, find themselves living in the heart of contested lands. Reuters, the news service, is reporting that the South Sudanese rebels and the government troops both said they controlled the capital of an oil-producing state in that country on Thursday, after days of fighting. And this comes after days of attempts to restart peace talks in Ethiopia, leaving the South Sudanese living in contested lands. Residents of Israel and Palestine are no strangers to what it means to live in contested lands. The world watches again and again as the two sides struggle to find peace. The world cries as their efforts fail repeatedly. Walls have been built to separate the one from the other, and those same walls cut off many important sources of livelihood. Actually, our denomination has waded in to that conversation a bit. We've recently called for a boycott of certain items made by Israeli companies in those contested territories. One of these is the SodaStream company, specifically because of how it uses the water from contested lands to make its products, how it pulls water from those who need it to make things that we buy. 
Apparently, the issue of water in these contested lands is an age-old problem. For you see, the well in today's story in the Gospel of John is right smack dab in the middle of contested land. Even though the well is in Samaria, it was recognized as Jacob's well, the place where Jacob met Rachel for the very first time, the place where he promised to marry her, the place where he brought Rachel's father's flocks to feed and to water, the place where he protected and grew his own family. It is a place of special significance to the Jews. And even though both the Jews and the Samaritans claimed Jacob as their patriarch, through the years, the Samaritans have come to feel like they are second-class citizens in their own land. You see, for generations, the Jews and the Samaritans were at odds over where worship should take place. You saw a little bit of that conversation between Jesus and the woman at the well. The Jews claimed Jerusalem was the only acceptable place for worship while the Samaritans, who were in the northern part of the country, worshipped on Mount Gerizam. They claimed it was the only acceptable place of worship. But the power and influence of Jerusalem far surpassed the, that found in the northern lands. And so, the Samaritans were vilified. They were denied access to the temple. The stories were reshaped to play up the importance of Jerusalem over Mount Gerizam. And then came the Babylonian invasion. The Jews, defeated by the Babylonians, carried away all the pretty and popular ones, all the ones that could influence the remaining Jews in Israel, carried away to the far reaches of the Babylonian empire, The Babylonians left those that they deemed unimportant, the ones that they found couldn't really do anything to affect the armies that were still there. Who did they leave? The Samaritans. Once again, reinforcing that they are unworthy, not even important enough to be carried away into exile. When the Jews returned from their exile, generations later, generations and generations later, the same old patterns began to reassert themselves. But at the time of today's story, the Samaritans still controlled this well. They controlled this important place, this place of life that sustained humans and animals alike. Women from the town of Sychar would come to this well in the morning, before the day grew hot. And they would gather to gather their water for the day. And they would go together to spend time with other women and to protect each other from strangers that might be in the land. But not this particular woman. This woman came to the well by herself at noon. Through the years, many many biblical scholars have called this woman a prostitute. But I and many others don't see any evidence for that in the text. It is clear from the text that she has had a difficult life. 
she has had five husbands. My wife would say that's more than enough difficulty. (laughs) But she's had five husbands. We don't know why. Maybe they left her because she couldn't have children. The text doesn't tell us. Maybe husbands have died. It is most likely the case that at least one of her husbands have died because the man she is with now is not her husband, Jesus says. She could be living with that man because she is dependent on or be in what's called a leave-right marriage, where a childless woman is married to her deceased husband's brother in order to produce an heir. Someone in that situation, someone who's passed off to a brother, is not technically considered to be married. She's somewhat protected, but not really married. So what do we know? This woman came to the well at noon. This was the author's way of signaling to the readers that she was excluded from the morning fellowship. She was excluded from the safety net and the protection that came with going to the well with her fellow women from the village. This was a woman who understood what it meant to be isolated, what it meant to be alone, what it meant to live with uncertainty. This was a woman who lived on the margins, a woman with a contested heart. Contested hearts, contested lands, these are not safe places for strangers. There's too many hot-button issues that can be triggered. Certainly, you would not break every social norm just to ask someone with too many burdens to bear for a favor in those contested areas of life. In those contested areas of life, certainly you would not stay longer than absolutely necessary. And most assuredly, you would not stay and have the longest conversation you have ever had with someone in a situation like that. And in that conversation, you would, without a doubt, not risk creating more friction than necessary by bringing up old stigmas. You would not highlight a person's brokenness and vulnerability. Certainly any sane person wouldn't do something like that. Certainly Jesus wouldn't do things like that. But that's exactly what Jesus did. The longest conversation Jesus has with anyone anywhere in Scripture is with the woman at the well. You see, he leaves Judea for Galilee, and he takes a mighty curve to go right through Samaria. In verse 4, which is before we started reading, the text says, but he had to go through Samaria. No, he didn't. The Jews didn't get along with the Samaritans. They hated each other. Generations and generations of hatred have built up between these two groups of people. He didn't have to go through Samaria. He could have avoided it. He could have gone around like everybody else. When Amy and I moved to Cleveland five and a half years ago, we left Atlanta right after she finished working at Emory Hospital. She said bye to her patients. 
We got into the cars that I had loaded with all of the stuff we couldn't fit in the moving van with our three kids, our dog, and our fish, and we started driving for Cleveland. When we got close to Cleveland, it was about 3 a.m., and we looked at our GPS, and we saw that the route we were going to be taking was 77 to East 55th to Kinsman, and we quickly hit reroute. We didn't want to go through those contested lands at 3 o'clock in the morning. Jesus wasn't about to hit the reroute button. The Scripture tells us he had to go through Samaria. He had to go through those contested lands. He had to see and experience it for himself. But why? What drew him to that well? The contested heart of a lonely woman who I think represents the distance between all God's people. Knowing what could happen, Jesus goes to the town of Sitar and waits at the well. As this broken woman approaches, he engages her and reveals himself as the Messiah of God, filling her with his light casting out the shadows in her heart, leaving her with no other option but to rush back into town and to share the lightness of her heart with all of those there. She becomes the first witness of the Messiah in the Gospels. Jesus enters without fear into the contested areas of life and calls us to follow inspires us to run out and share the news. But here's the thing. Following Jesus into contested lands is scary. I mean, the disciples were not far behind. They'd gone into the town together as a clump to find food in the town, the Samaritan town. And when they come back, they're asking themselves, what are we doing here? Why do we come through this? We could have gone around who is Jesus talking to? Is that, that is a Samaritan woman. What is he doing? But they don't say a word. Quiet as night. Just, it's not happening. It's not happening. Go to my happy place. It's not happening. And they watch as she runs off to the town and amazed as they see this crowd of people come back from the city, inviting Jesus to stay two more days. Jesus knows that there's more division that needs to be overcome. Jesus knows that there's more reconciliation that needs to happen. There's more light that needs to be shared in this world. And he doesn't allow the contested areas of our life to scare him away. Through the years, we have loved the idea of sharing the light of Jesus in this world. For many years, our tagline was Fairmount, the light in the heights. We imagined ourselves as a great big lighthouse on a hill, spreading the light of Christ's welcoming love out into the world, a beacon of hope and peace, drawing people into the warm welcome of God's loving embrace. And you know what? We are all of those things. 
This community is filled with the light of Christ's love. I see it every day. Our worship inspires. Our welcome is genuine and palpable. We truly believe and strive to express that God's love is for all people. Come and join us. We're here for you. You are welcome here. Come and join us and know God is present. And when we have identified contested lands and contested hearts in our own midst, we have immersed ourselves in the living waters of Jesus' love and had our own really long conversations that have resulted in witnesses going out from this place to share the good news of the Messiah at work here. But having grown up on coastal South Carolina, I feel like I know a thing or two about lighthouses. First of all, lighthouses are stationary. They're not going anywhere. You build one, and it's going to be on that hill for a while. The other thing to consider is that the light from a lighthouse only goes so far. In fact, a lighthouse will usually cast light no more than 15 miles out to sea, and I'm being a little generous there. But that light pulls the ships in to the safe harbors. It guides people and tells them where to go. It seems to me that we've always considered ourselves to be a lighthouse, drawing folks to us. But as we see in today's text, Jesus shows us that we have more to do. We are called out into the contested lands to encounter the, in, the contested hearts. We are called to leave the lighthouse and take to the choppy seas. And there are many contested lands out there and many contested hearts. In the Ukraine and Venezuela, in South Sudan and in Israel-Palestine, in La Romana in the Dominican Republic, and on Kinsmen, in Chagrin Falls and in Pepper Pike, in East Cleveland and in Cleveland Heights, in Shaker Heights, city of Cleveland, there are many contested lands and hearts just beyond our horizons, and we can't hit reroute anymore which means we need to be, we need to turn our lighthouse into a lighthouse ship. I was with Otis Moss III this week at a conference, and he introduced me to this idea of a lighthouse ship. I feel like I should have known about that, but I didn't. You see, a lighthouse ship is a ship that takes the light out onto the seas. These ships were designed to withstand the contested waters, to withstand winds of over 100 miles an hour, and their light was designed to go beyond the horizon. Where the light of a lighthouse will stop at the horizon somehow, I don't know how, I'm not that smart, but the lighthouse ship, their light goes beyond the reach of the horizon so that ships can find their way home. Lighthouse ships are mobile. They go where there is trouble. They can provide light 
beyond the horizon, past the places we allow ourselves to see. On his way to Galilee so long ago, Jesus boarded his own lighthouse ship to cross the contested areas where good people usually didn't go. And in that place, Jesus' light shined bright, allowing so many to find their way home. Their light shined so bright that others were drawn to them. Our light shines bright in this place, but it only hits the horizon. You, me, Each of us, we are called to be lighthouse ships. We are called to venture out into the contested lands, to encounter the contested hearts, and to allow the light of Christ's living waters to fill us up and overflow into the world. You are called to be a lighthouse ship, to cast off from this life-giving dock and to engage in the world so that all God's people, all of those with contested hearts, all of those in contested lands, can see and experience the light of Christ in their lives, that they may experience the living waters overflowing through you. May it be so. Amen.